At this time, the kids are dismissed to their program. Mm -hmm. Although, as always, we just hate to see them go. Are you familiar with the story, uh, The Emperor's New Clothes? <laughs> it's a great little tale, uh, Hans Christian Andersen, I believe, where the two weavers, they, uh, they're tasked with making these, these clothes for the emperor who uh, thinks too highly of himself. And so they say they're making this uh, special fabric that uh, only those who are fit for their positions and you know, worthy and brilliant or whatever can see the fabric. And and everybody else, you know, the fools, they can't see the fabric. Of course, the emperor, he can't see the fabric because they're not making any fabric. Uh, they're just uh, messing with him. And so he dresses all up in nothing, and he goes to parade uh, through the streets. Um, until uh, a little child points out uh, he has no clothes on. And all of a sudden, the facade comes crashing down. He's rather uh, embarrassed. Uh, he is revealed to be utterly uh, ridiculous. Well, sometimes uh, we hold these thoughts in our heads, these attitudes, these, we have these behaviors, we have these beliefs, and we need them uh, exposed for what they really are is ridiculous. Uh, nothing exposes the ridiculousness of our attitudes of, of pride or, or um, etc. like the cross does thinking about the death and resurrection of Christ. The, the cross reveals our ridiculous attitudes. This will be our, kind of our big idea today. If you're following along in notes in the bulletin, uh, there's some blanks to fill in, um, if you're that kind of person. The cross reveals our ridiculous attitudes. So here's the setting as we continue um, our study of the book of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus first spent all this time around Galilee as his ministry was, uh, was growing. And then in this section in the middle of the book, he is on this journey from far north of Palestine, uh, Caesarea Philippi, and he's headed down to Jerusalem. He's on this march toward the cross and, and all that happens in Jerusalem. On his way, he uh, goes back through Galilee and he kind of sneakily uh, goes into the, the town of Capernaum, which was kind of his home base for that whole uh, first part of his ministry. Um, this whole middle section is about discipleship on the way. It's almost like uh, the description of being on the way is a, a metaphor for discipleship, this journey with Jesus and all the things that the disciples must learn along the way on the road. And in this section in the middle of the book, we see this same cycle repeated three times. That's where Jesus tells his disciples, hey, look, I'm going to face some hard things. I'm going to be, be crucified in Jerusalem. And the disciples respond with uh, utter lack of understanding. And then Jesus takes the opportunity to, uh, to teach them further. And so this cycle happens three times. And this is the second of those cycles that we will look at today. So this morning, we'll first see Jesus' prediction about what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. And we'll spend most of our time looking at four lessons from Jesus that reveal the ridiculous attitudes that we tend to have. Um, remember that this whole section of the book, it's uh, directed its attention at disciples, people who follow Jesus, people like us who, who uh, call on the name of Jesus and, and count ourselves with him. Uh, the point is that, yes, even you and even I have much 
to learn uh, from Jesus. So we'll be in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's uh, some Bibles in the pew in front of you, and this is on page uh, 845, I believe, of those Bibles. So notice as we begin in verse 30 how, how Jesus announces uh, what's coming. This was all such a shock to the disciples because they started to comprehend him as the triumphant Messiah, which he certainly is, but they did not remotely understand this aspect of the Messiah. Verse 30. They went on from there and they passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. It's kind of a little private session here. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But, as is typical, they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They're like, I, I don't know, uh, don't ask him. Uh, remember when he chewed out Peter and all this? And so they, uh, they said nothing. What Jesus told them was basically the essentials of the gospel, like Paul describes later in in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, this is the gospel that I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the heart of the message about Jesus, and the disciples didn't quite know where all that fit into the scheme of things. When we grasp the cross, again, when we grasp the cross, our attitudes are shown for what they really are. So what kind of attitudes uh, are revealed? Well, here's one. In light of the cross, illusions of superiority are ridiculous. Verse 33, and, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, a side note, how it says the house, it's, it's like this known house. It's probably the home of uh, Peter and Andrew that was mentioned earlier uh, in the book. This is sort of their base of operations. So this kind of takes place in a, in a familiar setting, but, uh, but they kind of snuck into town without making a big fuss because he wants to spend time with his disciples. Sorry, still, still in the middle of verse 33. He was in the house and he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way... They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Just kind of the way this is all explained to us or relayed to us, it just shows the absurdity of what was going on. Uh, Garland says, says this. He says, uh, the picture Mark presents has, a tragic, has tragic comic dimensions. Jesus walks ahead in silence on his way to his sacrificial death while his straggling disciples push and shove, trying to establish the order of the procession behind him. So it's this scene, you could just, you know, it becomes so obvious how ridiculous their, their argument is. They, they kept silent because they were totally embarrassed about what they were arguing about. And Jesus takes this as a teachable moment, verse 35. So he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, in our culture, um, 
we have typically a view of children that makes it hard for us to understand probably Jesus' point here. The point wasn't of some, about something the child had, like the childlike faith or the innocence or, or uh, purity or something like that. It's, what, it's about what the child didn't have. <laughs> the child had no status whatsoever. The child was in the background. Maybe this was uh, Peter's kid or Andrew's kid. You just picture, you know, there's this important conversation. The disciples are all gathered around Jesus, and they're, they're wondering who's the greatest, and Jesus just pulls the invisible, you know, child from the corner and brings him right to the center of attention. Uh, France points out, the child represents the lowest order in the social scale, the one who's under the care and authority of others and who has not yet achieved the right of self-determination. We see in other passages even... Um, even an heir to a, um, to, a, to a big inheritance or a very important person, uh, they're still, when they're a child, uh, they're subject to the slaves of the house. So the child is a nobody, is the point here. So you can see the silliness of the disciples' uh, discussion about who's the greatest in light of what Jesus just told them about his death and his resurrection. I think it'd be something like going to a memorial service and you overhear the family right there in the middle of the service arguing about, well, who mom loved most and who's going to get the furniture and all these kind of conversations right in the middle of the memorial service. You'd be appalled. You'd be, this is, this is crazy. This is uh, disrespectful. It's shameful. It's uh, ridiculous. In light of the cross, for us to have any thoughts about superiority, who we are better than, who's more important in the scheme of things in, in God's family. It's really ridiculous as a believer to feel superior about whatever role we might have in the body of Christ. If I was to think I was something special because I'm your pastor, or one of our, our deacons to strut around because they're a deacon, or if you're a ministry leader or, or a worship leader, whatever it might be, it's just ridiculous for us to uh, elevate that in our minds, like, oh, okay, we'll all kind of file in here in this certain order. It's ridiculous for us to look at the larger body of Christ and feel superior about uh, our denominations, for instance. Uh, like, we're better, we're more holy, we're closer to God because of our, of our affiliations in some way. Or maybe it's just the same thing the world deals with, uh, feeling superior because of, of social status or how much money or how connected we are or who we know or how many people report to us, whatever it might be. In light of the cross, all that uh, is shown to be silly. In light of eternal things, in light of the sacrifice of our Savior, if there's a ranking in the kingdom of God, it's the exact opposite of what we think. <laughs> it's not about prominence, power, how many people report to you, but it's about obscurity, weakness, and how many you play servant to, how, how you serve. It's the complete opposite of how we tend to view things. Uh, a great example of this, and probably me just telling this story uh, blows his cover, but uh, a lot of you uh, remember um, when uh, Andrew Hull was here in ministry, he snuck around doing things like a, uh, like a Jesus ninja and uh, doing things behind the scenes. The more obscure, the better. He would park at the very, very far end of the lot, even if the lot was only you know, a third full, um, to give people spots up front. 
one day I ran out of gas, um, and he just saw my car, and he went and put gas on it because he recognized it on the side of the road. And uh, he didn't even say things, anything until later I was going to ask for a ride to go get gas for my car. And he's like, oh, no, there's gas in it. So anyway, it's just the kind of guy that behind the scenes, he's just, he's just serving. Just a, a fabulous example uh, of this, um, this point Jesus is making. It's not about this prominence. It's not about who's first. It's about serving. So in light of the cross, illusions of superiority are just really uh, ridiculous. Well, the disciples probably got really uncomfortable with these comments about Jesus, as they probably often were, unless they totally misunderstood him, and then they were less uncomfortable. But whenever they understood him, they got uncomfortable. Um, and so John changes the subject with this ministry report, and, and still Jesus uh, reveals that their attitudes are still ridiculous. Secondly, in light of the cross, exclusive clickishness. <laughs> Is ridiculous. Verse 38, uh, John said to him, it's interesting, this is I think the only time in the book of Mark where, where it's recorded that John said something kind of individually. And here's what he said. Uh, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Well, what's interesting is if this guy was... Um, was doing this in the name of Jesus, like by Jesus' authority, and he was successfully doing this. The demons actually fled. Uh, this suggests that he was genuinely uh, trusting Jesus. You know, he was, he, was, uh, he was believing in and counting on and, and, uh, and claiming Jesus. But the disciples were uh, skeptical, <laughs> and uh, perhaps they were uh, jealous. Uh, they had... Remember, recently failed at casting out a demon, and uh, just in the verses previous to this, they probably felt a little silly about that. They had this attitude of exclusiveness. Verse 39, Jesus says to John's little ministry report there, he says, well, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. We tend to be sometimes skeptical or jealous or critical when other groups are doing things in Jesus' name. Uh, Tom was just sharing an example of that this morning of how uh, he was involved in a, in a large thriving ministry and other churches started to be skeptical just because something good was happening there and they started kind of making these kind of wild uh, assumptions or accusations about it. It's just this human nature of well, if it didn't start here, then there's got to be something wrong with it, sort of attitude. And this is what John, John's uh, problem, he's probably representing all the disciples when he's like, we stopped that guy because, you know, he wasn't one of the 12 and he was doing these things in Jesus' name. And Jesus is like, why did you stop him? <laughs> let, it, let him keep doing it. It's not about what group or label, but whether your allegiance is in Christ and your trust is in his death. And resurrection. It's in the cross. In high school, um, I was very involved in a church, but it was a little ways away from my house, so it's kind of a drive. And, uh, and these guys came into this place I worked. I worked at a, a yogurt um, place, which is kind of peripheral to the story. But anyway, these guys came in, and uh, they invited me to a Bible study. I thought, oh, that's great. There's some other Christians. And, 
And then they kind of, it was a hard sell, and like I really had to go to this Bible study sort of deal. And so I went a couple of times, and it became clear that if I wasn't in their Bible study, then it didn't count to them. And uh, if I wasn't baptized in their church, it didn't count. And I realized that, um, well, this is actually uh, somewhat of a cult. And so this idea of, well, anything outside of our thing is not a Jesus thing. Like we have the copyright on Jesus or something like that. Uh, fortunately, I got out of there. Or you might also have heard of this uh, concept of ecclesiastical separation, and then there's secondary ecclesiastical separation. So ecclesiastical separation is, well, we distance ourselves from affiliation with groups that uh, don't believe the same way we do. And then you take it a step further with secondary separation. Well, we also distance ourselves from groups that don't distance themselves from groups that we don't agree with. And you could probably extrapolate that out to where it obviously starts to get um, ridiculous at some point. Some point, We might look at a megachurch ministry that uh, puts out a book or holds a conference or engages in some relief effort, and maybe our knee-jerk reaction is to think, hmm, something's wrong with that. I'm sure they're doing something wrong if that many people are coming to their church. And this is the problem John had, this real exclusiveness um, I appreciate uh, what Gary White, who's a pastor at the Vineyard Church here in town, um, when we were praying together, this is a phrase that comes up. He says, uh, may all ships rise as the tide comes in. In other words, Lord, do, do a work here. Do a work here at, at this church, at that church. And may, may your uh, presence and, and the experience of your rule and all, all that you're about, may it uh, increase everywhere. It's not this tug-of-war between uh, church members, you know, at one place and another, but it's, Lord, bring in the tide of your spirit, and may, may all the ships rise when that happens. I, I love that attitude. It seems to be the attitude that Jesus is calling for here. So some of you might be squirming <laughs> and thinking, but isn't the gospel exclusive? The gospel is very exclusive. And uh, that's hard to swallow in our culture because it clearly says in the Bible that the only way to have true life and a restored relationship with God is through Jesus. There's just one way. Uh, Jesus says this himself. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is an exclusive message that, that we can't, uh, you know, skirt around. We can't pretend that the Bible doesn't clearly say this. There, there's one way to experience um, rightness with God and true everlasting life. It's through Jesus. But the gospel is also very inclusive in that anyone who believes is equally a child of God. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those people that are uh, not part of our club, <laughs> and yet their allegiance is in Christ, and their trust is totally in the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. In light of the cross, this exclusive clickishness is what? It's ridiculous. You're catching on. The cross keeps us from being nearsighted to only seeing, like, you know, kind of what's in this room. The cross also keeps us from being short-sighted, of only looking at 
the here and now. It's, the cross takes our minds off of the temporal and turns it onto an eternal focus. So third, in light of the cross, carelessness with the soul is ridiculous. Carelessness about eternal things, things that really last, that is shown to be ridiculous. So in these following verses, uh, Jesus gives several uh, comparisons or better than statements to show uh, the comparative value of things. Verse 42, he says this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or, or to stumble, to, to fall away from the faith, whoever does that, will it be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea? Well, there's apparently two basic kinds of millstones back in that day, you know, a stone for, for grinding grain. Some were kind of a, a, hand, uh, a hand size, you know, that you'd work the grain with, maybe like a, a pestle and mortar or something like that. Um, and then there was what was called the donkey millstone, which was like this, an enormous uh, stone carved out in a you know, donut shape that uh, it would take a donkey or several strong men uh, to, uh, to move it around the circle to grind the, the grain. Uh, this passage literally says a, a donkey stone. It's better for you uh, to put one of these around your neck and just drop you right in the ocean. That's, you'd be better off if that happened to you than if you led um, a young believer away from the faith. That's really heavy, vivid language. In other words, it's better to die a horrible death than to do something that leads to someone losing faith. Because it's the, it's the comparative value of, uh, of the eternal soul to the things of this life. But it's not just this concern for other people's souls. Uh, Jesus says a series of things that, that get kind of personal to you and I. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, well, what should you do? Just cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And he goes on to say, it's better to be lame than to go to hell in the unquenchable fire. It's better to have your eye just gouged out and tossed away from you than to be excluded from the kingdom of God. So, you know, Jesus is saying these things that are just um, intense and outrageous, uh, making these huge comparisons. I, I'm pretty sure Jesus is not suggesting um, mutilation or, or um, you know, self-inflicted amputation or something like that. I think he's saying that nothing in your life, no matter how attached to it you are, no matter how precious it is, nothing is worth hanging the value of your soul on that. Nothing is worth clinging to that thing at the expense of your soul. I thought, what are some ways we do this? We, we lose track of the value of eternity in souls. In parenting, we might focus on making sure our kids are, are happy and healthy and get into good schools and get good jobs and are well-adjusted, whatever it might be. But if we neglect the soul... We are totally confused about values. When it comes to us personally, uh, we might cling to a job or a career or line of work, even if it's like bad for our, our soul, 
even if it, it wears on us and pulls us away from, from Christ. Some cling to a, a relationship, even if it's bad for their soul. I saw more than once as a, as a youth pastor, um, students who'd be real involved in the ministry, right in the, you know, coming to, to the group faithfully, um, really engage, and then they meet a boy or they meet a girl. And uh, pretty soon, we just don't really see them around much anymore. And uh, you could see how this relationship that they cling to pulls away from the faith. Maybe you cling to a hobby or some kind of entertainment, a technology, whatever it might be, that, uh, that wears on your soul, either by its enticements or just by the, the sheer fact that it, um, it crowds out eternal things. Well, in light of the cross, this sort of careless um, misappropriation of priorities is it, shown to be ridiculous. <laughs> Finally, Jesus comes full circle and he addresses uh, the dissension among his followers. Remember, this started out with the disciples arguing about who's the greatest and having this little dispute. And uh, he comes back to this topic again. But first he says in verses 49 and 50, some really uh, confusing metaphors about salt and fire. I'm always really scared when I look at some of the commentaries and say, um, the 15 uh, proposed uh, understandings of this phrase are such and such, like this is going to be bad. So he says these things, which I'm not going to dwell on, but I will read them. It says, for everyone will be salted with fire. We all know what that means. Just kidding. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And then he says, have salt in yourselves. Well, we, we could talk about those things and what they probably mean, but uh, he follows that by something nobody can misunderstand or miss. He says, and be at peace with one another. I think we all understand what that means. So fourth, in light of the cross, infighting with believers is what? It's ridiculous. When you identify by faith in Christ's death and resurrection, you are plunged into the body of Christ. Romans 6, you're you're baptized into, immersed into uh, the body of Christ. When you identify by faith in Christ's death and resurrection, you are adopted into the family of God. John, John 1, you become children of God. This is a more profound connection and a more eternal connection than family uh, through birth or marriage even. The, the bond in the family of God is profound and permanent, like no other relation is. How silly of us uh, to fight with one another. <laughs> Be at peace basically just means to live harmoniously with each other. Uh, take a look around. This is, this is your forever family here, uh, like it or not. <laughs> this is, uh, this is e- eternity Are you in conflict with uh, a brother or sister in Christ? Is there somebody, maybe they're even in this room, <laughs> somebody in this room or, or somebody uh, in your extended family who's a follower of Jesus or in another church or whoever it might be 
that, uh, that just your blood starts to boil and when you think about that relationship and there's, there's, there's conflict and there's animosity and there's critical spirit. If that's going on, you need to stop it. <laughs> this is the family of God that are, are purchased with the blood of Jesus. And any kind of infighting in the family of God is ridiculous. I think it's good that we celebrate communion uh, once a month <laughs> at minimum because it draws our attention back to uh, the family meal with Jesus. And, and, and the cost that uh, was paid so that we can be family. Because in light of the cross, infighting with believers is ridiculous. I don't know if uh, how many of you had a chance to go see Pine Dorado Parade yesterday. Some of, you, some of you may have come to town just for that. Some maybe left town just because of it or whatever. Uh, I went down. This, this picture is from a previous uh, year's parade. But just, uh, just imagine yourself, you are in the parade. You're, you're walking along. Maybe you're following a float. You're, you're waving to the crowds. And all of a sudden, you realize that you forgot to put any clothes on. So there's two things that you could do at that point. You could uh, just kind of keep smiling and waving like, ah, no one will notice and just carry on. Or you could just jet out of there, stop right then, and go put some clothes on. Um, who votes for just smiling and carrying on? No, who votes for get out of there and put some clothes on? Okay, thank you. I'm, with, I'm with you. I'm with the majority here at this time. Um, so when we come and reflect on the death and resurrection of Jesus, and sometimes these ridiculous attitudes are revealed in us, maybe um, this pettiness or maybe this comparison or maybe this feeling of superiority or the, this, uh, this infighting or just a losing track of the value of eternal things, when we see those for what they really are in light of the cross, uh, we can keep smiling and carrying on, or we could stop it <laughs> and confess that and, uh, and return to the most important thing. Any other response is, uh, is ridiculous. The cross reveals it for what it really is. So if I had just a closing um, a parting word, a parting challenge. Some of you, probably Miguel has already guessed what's going to be in this last blank, and he's already put away his paper. It's don't be ridiculous. When you, when you gaze on the, the cross of Christ, and, uh, and it reveals what's in your heart, um, don't just walk away and neglect that. Take it to the Lord and address it. Uh, let, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for being uh, patient with us. <laughs> thank you for uh, I- exposing our hearts in, in just the right ways that, uh, that help us to draw near to you rather than run from you. I pray that we would, would welcome that, that we would welcome um, your, your eyes looking into our souls and, and showing uh, what needs to be corrected. Lord, would you draw our attention to, to you to the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, to, to eternal things, to, to the beauty of Christ? Would you draw our attention to these things and let the things of this earth grow strangely dim in comparison? Lord, we invite you to do this uh, 
for your sake, and it's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen.